Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. It's a great thing to be able to have like video chats and stuff now. I understand why that's important to us. And hey, uh, of all the times to be alive during a pandemic, this has to be the best because you've got Google Hangouts and Zoom and all millions of different kinds of meetups and stuff like that that you can do online. And that's all, that's all great. I don't want to discredit that. But here's the thing. We don't know how to use it yet. You know, like not broadly as a whole society. Like I'm sure you've been on a video chat this week or you may or may not have. I don't know. But uh, inevitably, there ends up being a couple of different people on that video chat. I can even predict who's been on your video chat this week. There's uh, this guy who doesn't know how to mute his microphone. And so you've got kids screaming in the background. For whatever reason, he decides to open up a like peppermint, even though there's nobody around to even smell his breath. But it sounds like your uh, camera or your laptop is slowly like crackling with electricity and exploding from the inside. And then you've got that guy uh, that's always uh, trying to speak while other people are speaking, you know? And they're like, hey, hey, hey you know what? what? Oh, oh, are you going? Oh, is it? Is it me? Is it you? Is it me? Uh, oh, oh, no. Uh, but the best, I think, is, uh, and we've all been this guy, that's the great thing, is that sometimes when you're looking uh, at the screen and you see something in the background that you really want to check out a little bit more, do you not, like, you know, move to get a better angle on it? Like, I can't tell you how many people I saw this week see something, you know, hanging out in the background of the screen, and then they're like, oh, man, if I can just move my head to see around this corner then I can actually see what's going on there. The truth is that that is absolutely not true and not at all how video chats work. But we all know that. And it's going to be something that we're going to have to get used to. In fact, there's a lot that we're going to have to get used to. This is a very, very strange time to be alive. It's a strange time to even, like, you know, be engaging with a church at all. Here I am preaching to a camera. There's a lot of things I have to change. Uh, I don't have to pause for laughter near as much. I mean, I booked into my sermons about half the time that I was planning on up being up there, just pausing so that I could, you know, wait for applause or laughter or something like that. No longer do I have to do that. You can hit pause on the video and, you know, go uh, run to the bathroom really quick and get your laughter or pee out or something like that. I don't know. Maybe we'll edit that part out later. That wasn't really a great joke. Anyway, uh, lots and lots of crazy stuff to get used to. What's really interesting is that uh, the thing about that guy who's trying to sort of like see around the webcam kind of feels like us a little bit right now. It's like we don't really know what's going to be happening, and I think in a lot of ways we're like trying to see what we can't see, which is the future. We're trying to understand something that we don't even have the capacity to understand, and that is the sort of broadness and, and massiveness of this global pandemic. So today what we're going to do is uh, I just want to talk very, very briefly about what it means to be able to see hope. What it means to be able to, in this time, uh, no matter where you happen to find yourself, no matter, you know, if you're working like normal, or if you've lost your job, or if you're quarantined, or if you're in one of those jobs that's just going crazy, like maybe at a hospital right now or something like that, no matter where you are, uh, I think 
there's a way in which we can change where we currently are standing or how we perceive ourselves in the world around us that can actually provide more hope for us as we go through this difficult season. Mary Magdalene is who we're talking about today in our scripture, and uh, it's amazing the way in which her particular story in this particular moment so perfectly parallels us. So if you don't know, uh, Mary Magdalene was one of the uh, followers of Jesus. She was actually healed by Jesus, uh, released from a possession, and then uh, she was set free by Jesus, and then Jesus uh, became her her master, her teacher, her Lord, and she started following him around. Uh, she's actually present in a lot of the scenes of the Bible. Uh, we see that she had like a pretty prominent place among the followers of Jesus. She was in sort of like an, an inner circle kind of thing. And today we see the coolest thing. So if you recall, if you've been following along with us, uh, we've been going through uh, the book of John for a little over a year now. And we're actually, uh, we're post-death now. So Jesus has died on the cross last week. Uh, Mary actually went and got some of the guys. She got Peter and John to come and see. And they came and saw that Jesus was not in the tomb. Then the guys run away. They leave. They go back to their home, you know. They're like, Jesus is not there. John has this weird moment that he tells us about where it's like, oh, and then John got it. That disciple, he understood. He believed in that moment what was happening. But he didn't tell anybody. He just sort of left. So this leaves Mary sitting there at the tomb, the empty tomb with no Jesus in it, weeping, broken down, feeling lost, feeling hopeless. You know, what's astounding in this is that a week ago, a week ago for Mary, or less than a week really, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he is being praised as a king. Right? Like people are standing on the side of the street, they're throwing out palm branches, they're laying down their coats for his donkey to walk on, and now he is dead. She watches him die on a cross, and now, uh, as if that isn't bad enough, this person that she loves, this person that she's been following, this person uh, that she has a close personal relationship with, that person now has not even in the grave he's supposed to be in. She was coming to pay some like final respects, maybe put a little more like uh, spices or something like that, or, or sweet-smelling things uh, in and around his gravesite. And as she comes up on that scene, she sees that his body has been stolen, that he is not in the tomb where he's supposed to be. Augustine actually writes it this way. He says, And the eyes, speaking of Mary's, And the eyes which had sought the Lord and had not found him, had now nothing else to do but weep. Deeper in their sorrow that he had been taken away from the sepulcher than that he had been slammed on the tree, seeing that from their eyes his remembrance had also ceased to remain. Such grief, therefore, now kept the woman at the sepulcher or at the, at the tomb. This is the state that Mary is in in this moment. She cannot leave because of how, how dark her situation, how bleak, how awful it seems to be. All she feels like she can do is sit there and weep. She can't see him. She doesn't know where her Lord and Savior has gone. This man who has done so many impressive and amazing things in her life is now just gone, disappeared. It's amazing the way that grief 
particularly can sort of uh, wrap you up and, and cloud your perception so much. It's amazing uh, the way in which when you are in the midst of grieving, it is difficult to see reality. It is difficult to actually understand how the world is actually operating. In fact, if you've read the text, you see that uh, Jesus actually comes up to Mary. Mary is weeping in the tomb, and she, uh, hearing Jesus speak to her, actually assumes that he's like a gardener or something. And she's kind of like, leave me alone. Uh, I don't want to talk to you right now. Do you know where Jesus is? Uh, do you know where they have taken my Lord? And yet this whole time it was right there. It was Jesus talking to her. Grief clouds your perception of reality. Grief holds you back from being able to see clearly. Right now it's easy to sort of be in that same place that Mary Magdalene is. Where we're looking at the world and we're saying, what do we do now? Everything has changed. I set my life up on a few things and now they are all coming crumbling down. It's confusing. It's scary. Uh, parts of it are frustrating and angering. Uh, it is just, it's, it's an odd time to be alive. Everything, or many of the things at least, that you were depending on a week ago don't even exist in the same form now. I mean, I, I had this moment in the grocery store at the earlier part of this week where I saw these two sweet old grandmothers arguing over like a roll of paper towels. And I'm thinking like, this is the purge. It's happening. Uh, we're all about to just go to martial law and one of these grannies is about to kill each other. That, I mean, that's how it feels sometimes. And it can be scary. We're asking questions like, how do we come out of this? What do we do now? How are we supposed to live? What, what, what's the way in which we move forward as a like, country, as a world, as a society, as individual people? What's going to happen? These are all the questions that we're asking. And in the middle of grieving the world that we've lost, it's difficult to actually think about the world that is coming next, the world that we're building. One of my uh, favorite superheroes is actually Daredevil. He may be uh, the number one superhero for me. And it's, it's truly a tragedy if you watch that Ben Affleck Daredevil movie. <clears throat> it was awful. Much love for Ben Affleck, but, I mean, come on, dude. For real, that just, just no. All right, it was awful. I apologize uh, for that even existing, even though I didn't have anything to do with it. The, Net the Netflix uh, series actually was, like, pretty great. Some of the best, like, fight scenes of any film or television I've ever seen. You definitely, definitely need to go check it out. And, hey, added bonus, you got a little extra time on your hands, so please, please do yourself a favor and uh, take a look at that. In the very first season, we get a little background information on Daredevil. And if you don't know, his sort of like basic thing, his format as a character is that he's a lawyer and he's blind, but at night he's also a crime-fighting vigilante. And so there's lots of like cool like uh, metaphors and parallels there, right? He's like kind of got that blind justice thing going on. Uh, he's got the like working on the right side of the law to do what is right uh, during the day and then working on the wrong side of the law to do what is right during the night. Uh, lots of little awesome back and forth things there. What's really cool in this series is they, they bring up this scene when Daredevil was a little kid. Uh, he was blinded after like a truck accident, some chemicals spilled and they spilled into his eyes. And he develops a relationship with this like kind of sensei type guy uh, who's called Stick. And Stick's sort of uh, asking him some questions and he says, Okay, so let me get this straight. You're nine years old, 
you get hit by a truck and then you die instantly right there. And a little Matt Murdock, who is Daredevil, says like, no, 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 I didn't die. I'm right here. I'm sitting right in front of you. And Stick looks at him and he says, oh, oh, you didn't die. Okay, praise God. Uh, so what happened then? Uh, you lost your sight? And he said, yeah, yeah, I can't see anymore. And then Stick uh, sort of changes the entire conversation, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing very poorly right now, but basically what he ends up saying is, he says, in this moment you can either recognize uh, that you're not dead, that your life is not over, that this is not the end of everything, but it might, in fact, be the beginning of something else. He is the first person to recognize in Matt that his sort of second sight, his ability to, to see the world around him without eyes, is actually a gift. It's actually something that Matt is going to be able to use to make the world better from now on. Now look, I'm not going to sit here and like pitch to you like, you know, rainbows and sunshine or anything like that. And I, I definitely don't want to make light of the, the massive suffering that is happening all around the world. It's difficult and maybe impossible for anybody to argue like, oh, the world is a better place now uh, because the coronavirus is hit and because all of this has happened. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that you right now have the responsibility and the power to sort of control how you're perceiving this entire thing, how you think of yourself, how you think of the world around you, uh, how you think of your responsibility now moving forward. And you can either look at it as a death, you can look at it as something uh, to grieve, you can look at it as like the end of the old world as you know it, or you can look at it as the beginning of a new one. What's really cool in our story is that uh, Mary, once she hears Jesus actually utter her name, which is sort of like just a sweet picture, right? It's like uh, Mary hears this guy and she's like, I don't know who you are, leave me alone. And then he says, Mary. And that familiarity of actually knowing her name, that like uh, that uh, relationship that they clearly had, cues her in to say, oh, okay, this is Jesus. He's actually talking to me. She turns around and she says, uh, Rabboni which uh, is sort of like a, a form of the word rabbi. It's actually sort of like attaching the word my to it. So it's sort of like my rabbi, right? She doesn't turn around and she says, oh, Professor Jesus, you're back. She doesn't turn around and say like, oh, principal, hey, how are you? It's good to see you. No, no, no. She says, my teacher, my leader, my master. She turns around and recognizes him for who he is. And it's interesting, Jesus actually sort of throws that my language right back at her. We see this in verse 17. He says, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. See, Jesus takes what Mary says, where Mary's like, ah, My teacher, you're here. And then he reminds her of something really important. He says to her, uh, go and tell the brothers that I am going to ascend to my God, but also to your God. But maybe something that's even more important right there is he says, I am going to ascend to my Father and your Father, our Father together. 
See, through Jesus' death, he actually paves a way. He makes a way for people to no longer be separated from God so that no longer are they people uh, who are outside of you know, God, who are separated from him in any way. Now they are people who are actually uh, recognized as God's children. You see, all too often Christianity gets boiled down to like a religious system or, you know, one of many options of like a life philosophy or something like that, when in truth it is nothing like that at all. In fact, it's actually more like being welcomed into a family. The Bible tells us that if we are followers of Jesus, we are co-heirs with Christ. We are children of God. Jesus here reminds Mary of what's most important about her. He reminds her, even in this time of terrible and awful grief, that she is someone who is loved by God. And in fact, now that he has made the way, now that she's followed him and that he has died on the cross for her sins, she is actually a child of God. She is a child of a father, a co-heir with Christ, the promise of God. We have a little saying that we like to say at Dwell Church, and it's something that I think I have to remind myself all the time of, and that is that the most important thing about me is that I am loved by God, and the most important thing about you is that you are loved by God. More important than any other sort of like self-identifying mechanism we can possibly put on ourselves. The most important thing about our identity is that we are loved by God. You are not defined as being a person who is confused. You are not defined by your fear during this time. You are not a person for whom the coronavirus is happening to. You're not just, you know, a person who had this job but don't have it now. You're not a person who uh, was living this way but is now living different. You're not a person who's suffering under self-quarantine. You are first and foremost someone who is loved by God. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus, not only are you loved by God, but you are also accepted and taken into his family as a child of God. Your most important identity then is found in being a child of God. And if the Bible has one consistent message from the beginning to the end, it's that God is going to care for, protect, love, and ultimately work out everything for the best for his people, for his children for the people that he loves. See, when your identity is all wrapped up in fear and concern and confusion and, and grief over the life that you've lost, it's easy in that way to despair. But when your identity is found in being loved by the creator of the universe, it doesn't leave any room for despair. Mary walked into this whole situation being someone who's grieving a great and powerful loss, and she walked out of this situation a child of God. You have the same ability, the same power to do that today. All it takes is a subtle, small, but important shift in perceiving who you are. You are loved by God.
Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.